Welcome back to the West London Witch. This episode contains graphic details of murder and crimes committed against children. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit of a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Aurelians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe besmeared with blood and brains from he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as not only to amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them try not to discover what I am, for it were better that they will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleans think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, To be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for your people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, in fact, or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. On March 13, 1919, this letter, supposedly written by a monstrous serial killer in New Orleans, was mass published in the local newspapers. From May 1918 to October 1919, New Orleans and its surrounding townships had been plagued by a rash of horrendous murders, all committed by an unidentified axeman. The victims were predominantly Italian-Americans or Italian immigrants and were either all killed or injured in their homes, typically with their own axes or straight razors. Robbery did not appear to be a motive as nothing was stolen or taken from the crime scenes. It suggested that either sexual assault or racism motivated these crimes. But what is undisputed is that as quickly as the murders began, they surprisingly stopped. After the March 13th letter was released, the residents of New Orleans clambered to ready themselves for the axe murderer's next attack. 
On the night of March 19th, every dance hall and jazz club in the city was teeming with scared citizens. Jazz music blared from every venue. Every musician, professional and amateur, were booked to play at clubs, private residences, and dance halls. Jazz blared from every radio and phonograph in town. And oddly enough, it worked. There were no killings on the 19th. Axe murderers are extra frightening because of the level of malice, hate, and physical violence they require. It's a hideous, messy, chaotic, and rage-filled type of killing. And they have been historically difficult to prove. The Axeman of New Orleans was never caught. Lizzie Borden was acquitted. The Hendrick Hyfecht murders has a list of suspects, yet no conclusion. But there is one axe murder case that even after 111 years still confounds true crime aficionados because of its level of brutality is only matched by its level of mystery. It's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough. So if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind the scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of The West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. Everyone loves a mystery. And with the advent of the internet comes an unregulated platform where theories, suspects, conspiracies, and evidence can be circulated. From theories that are born out of historical facts or nonsensical fiction, you can find a lot of conflicting information floating around the web. For our 50th episode, I wanted to share a story about one of the most famous and prolific unsolved murders in American history, the Velisca Axe Murders. But my research led me to an abundance of confusing and conflicting retellings. So, I went straight to the source. Johnny Hauser is the official historian for the Velisca Axe Murder House and agreed to join us today to set the story straight. Forget what you may or may not know about these brutal killings, because the truth is even more frightening and complex 
than the fiction. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 50, The Velisca Axe Murders. June 9th, 1912. Uh, it was a Sunday. The town had a church service, and this was more or less a end of Bible school event where the kids would sing songs, put on little skits and little plays, and it, it was held in the evening. It was sort of a overcast, cold, and rainy day for June in Iowa. Everybody in town went to this. Um, it's interesting reading through the old newspapers. People from other towns were excited to come to this, and if you got kids and they have a play, you're just kind of like, uh, all right. That's it. But like, people are so excited and they're going and afterwards, everybody's kind of shaking hands and visiting and the Moors walk home with Ina and Lena Stillinger. These are two little girls that were friends with Catherine Moore, their daughter. They had a sleepover and actually they had two little boys walking with them. And right at the last second, these boys veered off to their house. Otherwise it could have been 10 easily. Ina and Lena were supposed to stay with their grandparents that night. Who wants to stay with grandma when you got a friend to play with? And they were playing all day long, so I'm sure they came up with this idea way before the church service. On that gloomy June evening, the Moore family, consisting of Father Josiah, Mother Sarah, and their four children, Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur Boyd, 7, and Paul Vernon, 5, all trudged back to the Moore family residence after a long and exhausting day at the Church Children's Day program. Little Ina May, aged eight, and her sister, 12-year-old Lena Gertrude Stillinger, were excited to keep the fun going into the evening with a slumber party with Mary Catherine. They go home, go to bed. Ina and Lena take Catherine's room downstairs. Uh, the entire Moore family is upstairs. So you got six upstairs, two downstairs. Next day, Mary Peckham, the neighbor, is up doing her laundry about four or five in the morning. Pretty quickly, she's like, something's not right. Um, I mean, they were neighbors for 13 years. I'm sure she had their routine down. She said there's an odd stillness uh, surrounding the house. Tried knocking at the doors, knocking at the windows. The chickens were stirring. The, the cows needed tending to. Something felt seriously off. Mary Peckham knocked on the door, but there was no answer. She was met with total silence. Josiah owned a farm implement shop in town, and his employees had also begun to note his absence. The employees came searching for Josiah, but once again, no answer. Eventually, Ross Moore, a brother, comes down to check on him. Mary sees him out in the front yard and says, Ross, Ross. Something's, something's not right. So he jimmies the front door open, walks into the downstairs, but he lights a match because it's just pitch dark in there. Um, all the shades are pulled. Uh, lights a match, walks into the downstairs room, sees two bodies in the bed. Instantly knows something's wrong. The blood was everywhere. He runs out, says, Mary, something terrible's happened. Get the authorities now. The minister to the family and the town constable and the physician come down. They go upstairs, find six more bodies. All six of the Moors and both the little Stillinger girls were found brutally and savagely hacked to death. Everyone's in bed, just like they went to sleep and had no idea, hopefully, what happened. They started taking note of the crime scene. Uh, the two front door, all the shades were pulled. The two front doors had one of Sarah's nightgowns ripped in half, covering uh, there was originally a door going into Ina and Lena's room that had an oval window cut out in the door. That was covered with a sheet. The axe was left in the downstairs bedroom, raw bacon laying on the floor, mirrors covered with sheets. Every mirror was covered. Bloody water by the back door, cigarette butts in the attic. Oil lamps were at the edge of the bed with the wicks ripped in half and turned all the way down. And the, the tops, the little globe of the oil lamps were underneath the dresser. Bunch of spent candles underneath the stove, which, you know, nobody really knows if that was the killer or just the Moore family. And there was also half-eaten food left at the table. 
So everybody knew Sarah was a meticulous housekeeper and you don't leave food out because that's when mice come in back in those days. Uh, the newspapers reported that Sarah had the cleanest kids in town. Kind of funny, but so they knew it immediately that the killer had made something to eat after he did all that. This terrifying and horrific crime was going to need more attention and expertise than the local authorities could provide. So a detective from Levensworth was sent for. Wouldn't be a while to train ride. He shows up. He's drunk when he gets off, like falling out of the vehicle drunk. So it embarrasses the town constable. He sobers him up at the hotel. At this point, townsfolk were forming these vigilante posses, these mobs looking for a blood-soaked lunatic hiding in a barn. So they're going house to house, barn to barn. And I can just picture, you know, the, the torches and almost like the scene on Frankenstein, you know, they don't find anything. So then it turns into, had to be a sex fiend. The only problem was, what does a sex fiend look like? The townsfolk didn't know who to look for. All they knew was that it couldn't be a normal white male living in the area or possibly passing through. This type of crime had to be committed by an evil, hideous monster. Bloodhounds show up the next day. Uh, they take the trail off the front porch, go right up to a gentleman named F.F. Jones's house, and you got the mob following these dogs. The dog stops. And half the mob is going, Jones did it, get him. The handler of the dog is like, no, the dog stopped, but he's using the restroom. <laughs> the dog was going to the bathroom. He stopped, but he didn't stop, stop. That didn't matter. At that point, half the town, the victim's families and Mary Peckham's or F.F. Jones, state senator, had something to do with it. The state senator wouldn't be the only suspect, though. The list of possible perpetrators was growing just as quickly as the townspeople's fear and rage. Meanwhile, uh, state and local authorities are building a case against a gentleman named Reverend Kelly uh, almost immediately. Reverend Kelly was a sort of a self-ordained schizophrenic traveling minister who thought you had to commit sins to get inspiration for sermons. Uh, had a long arrest record. He would start stenographer businesses, get arrested for trying to get one of his women to type without her clothes on. When questioned about this, he goes, oh, I thought I was an artist. I just wanted to draw him. Reverend Kelly was a solid suspect. He was known to be strange, a peeping Tom, and a generally questionable man. And even better, he was in town that weekend for the children's church program. And he left Monday morning, supposedly told people on the train what happened before they even found the bodies. He goes to his home in Macedonia. Three days later, he comes back. Hey, everybody, my name's George Kelly. I'm a uh, investigator for the Queen of England. And they're like, uh, we know you. Like, you, you're here all the time. We know who you are. He's pretending to work for the Queen. Um, inserting himself into investigations. Uh, ends up in the South Dakota uh, jail. Uh, he's five, 220 pounds. All the other inmates are picking on him and goosing him. And he's talking about killing people in Villisca. They put him in a mental home for two years. He gets out and they decide, we need to give this guy something to occupy his mind. Let's give him a church to preach at. So he began to preach at a new town. His parishioners were instantly uncomfortable with the reverend. He was known to corner locals on the street and talk to them for hours about Velisca. Themes and imagery from the murders began to be woven into his sermons. And he seemed obsessed with the brutal death of eight supposed strangers. One night, he, the snowstorm, he wraps up in a fur coat, walks in a lady's house and sits down at the table. And she wakes up and she's like, I uh, can I help you. He goes, Killer and Bliska made a big mistake, turned in a bloody shirt to be dry cleaned. We now know that there's a bloody shirt turned in to be dry cleaned uh, in Council Bluffs, Iowa, with the return address of Macedonia, Iowa. Kelly was living and preaching when this happened. Then Kelly goes, 
This guy has a compulsion to kill. He can't help it. We should really have pity on him. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, we should really pity this poor guy, don't you think? And I'm reading that like, who is going to say we should pity somebody that killed six little kids with an axe? Youngest being five years old. Good grief. And I thought, ah, I know who is saying that. The guilty person said that. Johnny isn't the only one who thought that Reverend Kelly sounded a little bit suspicious. And it wasn't long before the good Reverend confessed. He said that on the night of the murders, he woke up to a voice whispering to him, saying, Rise, Peter, slay and eat. He then went for a walk and ended up outside the Moore family home. While standing in the moonlight, watching the sleeping residents, a dark shadow emerged from the backyard and handed him an axe. Like magic, Kelly said he could see in the dark and was compelled to enter the home, axe in hand. He told police he climbed Jacob's ladder to heaven, presumably the staircase that led to the second floor, and then entered the children's room first. He proceeded to slaughter the children and then went into the other upstairs bedroom to kill Josiah and Sarah. After killing the Moors, he said he felt tired and needed a rest, which led him to discover the Stillinger girls asleep downstairs. A shocking and emotive confession, to be sure. Then he said he didn't do it. Then he went on about working for the Queen of England. I mean, the guy was all over the place. 1918 at this point, he's for sure schizophrenic, no understanding of the mental illness, no medication. I mean, they tried him for the death of Lena Hungary, death of Ina Bullockwittle. We have no idea. I mean, everything we thought we know, we know. Reverend Kelly and Senator F.F. Jones are just two in a long list of suspects. But it's unlikely Jones committed the murder as there is literally nothing but town gossip and totally unfounded speculation filling that line of suspicion. It was suggested that F.F. Jones hired a hitman to kill the Moors. The only problem with that is the supposed hitman had an airtight alibi. He was at work in Illinois during the murder. He wasn't even in the state. There are at least five other suspects all of whom were either cleared or unsuccessfully prosecuted. There's a lot of theories. But the waters have been seriously muddied with rumor, speculation, and sheer scandalous tattle. And that's the big problem with this case. You get a small town. Everyone knows the cop. So everyone thinks they have the inside info. Everyone's a detective. You got way too many noses in this whole thing, and it's just destroying it. But even 111 years later, this story continues to be twisted and conflated. And that's where Johnny wants to set the record straight. There are a lot of conflicting and hair-rising stories about the crime, the crime scene, and the victims circulating the web. So, I asked Johnny to clear up some of the weird, wild, and frankly, disgusting tales. So one thing that I keep seeing over and over and over is that the crime scene was opened up to the neighborhood. The neighbors all traipsed through and all took bits and pieces from it. Did that happen? And if so, how? Uh, Yeah. I mean, as soon as word spread about what happened, you got 2,000 people down here. Uh, pushing, shoving, trying to go in and look at what happened. Um, at one point, the medical examiners and Ina and Lena's room doing a time of death, which was like a rigor mortis test of lifting the arm and seeing how long it took to drop, which he nailed it down between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. So last night, wow, nailed it. <laughs> Science. <laughs> um, but he's going to the cop. He's like, what are you doing? We get these people out of here. And the cops like, as soon as I push them out the back door, they come in the front and they're trying to come in windows and 
they had to mobilize the National Guard to get come down and get control over the whole thing. It was that out of control. People everywhere. Women started wiping up the blood because they knew Miss Sarah was a meticulous housekeeper and she wouldn't want people seeing her house that way. The men are passing the axe around. I mean, it's just, this is what made Iowa put in place an early form, the DCI that would like handle this kind of stuff. They're like, we need some sort of something <laughs> besides half the town wandering around destroying evidence. What's the deal with the raw bacon? So I'm glad you said that. This is one of the biggest misconceptions I see all of the time. And the story that goes around on the internet is the raw bacon was laid on the floor because he used it as a, a homemade vagina to do some sexual weird stuff to the little kids. Not true. Um, I've seen experts talk about how Lena was posed provocatively with her legs spread and this, not according to the coroner report. Coroner said her arm was kind of up over her face and her leg was kind of dangling off the bed. Going back to when I said, must be a crazed sex fiend. They looked at that. They looked at the idea of anything sexual because they were trying to figure out what would make someone do this. They found no bodily fluids. Um, they're the little girls were not pondled. I mean, they're, they weren't prosed provocatively. There this blood stain was not on her inner thigh. It was on her knee. The bacon was wrapped up in a cloth tied nicely, leaned up against a wall. It wasn't, and it would have been like cured bacon back then. So they, I mean, they looked into the sexual angle left and right and they left saying, no, that's not the case. But now all of a sudden it is the case. A very prevalent retelling on the internet is that Lena Stillinger was not wearing undergarments. Her dress was pulled up and she was possibly posed. Johnny, was the dress in fact pulled up? No, it wasn't like exposing her genitals or anything. Um, they, she didn't have underwear on, neither did her sister. I mean, those, yeah, and those were your nice church clothes. Like back in those days, weird as it sounds, people had a pair for the week. The more macabre and grotesque this story becomes, the more morbid fascination it garners. But the reality is, isn't it bad enough that six little children and a husband and wife were mysteriously killed in their beds? You don't need to add anything more to this tragedy. You know, there is no motive. There, there's just no motive at all and. So when you get no motive, people start creating their own motives. Must have been an affair. All speculation, all gossip. Must have been bad business dealings. You know, they try and come up with an idea to make themselves safe. Like, oh, it must have been an affair. I don't do that, so I'm safe. You know, um, you go with Reverend Kelly. He thought God was telling him to kill. So he had to do it. If you go with F.F. Jones bad business dealing or an affair. Um, you go with a serial killer just for fun. No breaking and entering, nothing stolen. Nothing happened since in this town. I mean, it's very, you know, part of me really goes with Kelly, but then as I'm giving my case for Kelly doing it, I almost talk myself out of it sometimes. Like uh, I had to be personal, but then I know Lena didn't do anything to anyone. If you have a beef against Joe, find him in an alley. Like I said, they had guns and knives back then. Why use an axe? Like that's the weirdest way possible. They had way other options. Um, he had a bunch of money on his dresser, not even touched. Like, you're a murderer, but you're no thief. Like, why wouldn't they just take all that cash, too? After an event as tragic and horrific as the murder of eight people in a house, why wasn't it raised? We're seeing that currently happen with the Idaho murder house. And it makes sense. Who would want to live in this home after something so diabolical occurred in it? 
Well, they offered six months free rent for anyone that would move in. The first person to move in stayed one night in the house, slept in the barn the rest of the time, left his wife and kids in there, but he wanted nothing to do with it. So then they left. Another family moved in. They stayed two nights. They left claiming to hear footsteps. The wife said she saw a silhouette holding an axe. Going back to the shadow thing, the newspapers are saying, oh, the hysteria of the axe man being on the loose. Lock up your daughters. Hide your wives. Uh, in the 30s and 40s, they were doing seances in the house, trying to find the killer that were out with a big spiritualist movement. In the 60s, a family bought it. Nobody in town told them what happened there when they moved in. And that's where the two little girls uh, would wake up to footsteps, uh, doors opening, closing, giggling. The mom would put her laundry away, go back up, doors are open, laundry's thrown everywhere. They witnessed doors opening and slamming. They told the dad, who's a truck driver, and the dad's like, once you're dead, you're dead, that's it. There ain't no ghost quit with all this. He's sharpening his knife in the kitchen. And he just takes his knife and shoves it through his hand, snaps out of it, wraps up his hand. They load what they could in the pickup, left everything else. And then the family lived there 18 years and said nothing at all happened. With a crime as callous and barbaric as the Velisca Axe murders, the next natural question is, is the home haunted by the victims? Johnny is a historian and a true crime fanatic. He thought the ghosts were just old wives' tales, he put zero stock in any type of hauntings. However, it wasn't long before he began to experience things he simply couldn't explain. I walk in one day and I hear somebody walk across the upstairs and shut a dresser drawer. So I'm instantly mad. I'm like, who's in the, who's here? You know, we're supposed to be in here. So I go marching upstairs. I'm like, can I help you? Hello? Nothing. As soon as I got off work, I went to the bar to have some drinks with my guy friends. And they're like, oh, houses make noise, man. Not a two-year-old. I know what a footstep is at this point in my life. I'm not a complete idiot. So I started staying the night. And I've done over 700 overnights alone in that house since then, which is far more than anyone has. I've never seen a ghost. I've seen every door open and close on non-windy days. Like I, I know how wind works. Um, I've seen objects move, chairs rock, pull on conversations upstairs. The best thing I can tell anyone is like people aren't stupid. Uh, the overnights would have fizzled out 20 years ago and it's still, we're booked like almost a year in advance every night, seven nights a week. And the people that come aren't, well, this month alone, I had a homicide detective out of Miami you know, basic ghost hunting teams, professing staff at one of the state colleges, pops, nurses, people that aren't going to freak themselves out because it's dark. Like, people aren't that dumb, you know, and most of the people that come are try to debunk it. They want to prove it's fake. And then they leave claiming this, this, and this happened. This is a seriously, spiritually active home. And one of the things that makes it so scary is that it feels real. The activity doesn't feel ghostly. It's winter time and the overnight's canceled because there's a big blizzard. There's a Friday night at 10 p.m. I decided I'll go fix some stuff at the house. I'm in the house and I lock the doors so nobody can come walking in. I'm upstairs, door opens, door shuts, somebody walks in. And in my head, I'm just like, we're not open. And I'm like, Obviously, they broke in, idiot. Like, it's 10 o'clock at night. So I'm listening to them walk around, and then it dawns on me, they don't know I'm up here. This is going to be awesome. So I hide in the kid's room closet. plan was to scare this kid and just be like, why are you breaking in? If you want to see it, I'll just show it to you. You know? The walking comes up the steps into the room I'm in. You can feel it in the floor, because there's a lot of bounce to the floor. Um, there's a gap underneath the closet door and you can see ambient street light shining through and I'm kind of watch that something walks by the window that blocks that light out I kick that door open and do the big ah there's nothing uh, nothing at all and I couldn't even move I was frozen and I went to say hello and it was just ah. like I couldn't even talk 
Like I was so free. And then I was like, are you just going to stand here all night? So I do the worst combat roll ever around the corner, down the steps, seeing the door was still locked, checked the whole house. I watched a surveillance video, door didn't even open. And that one got me pretty good because not at one point was I thinking, oh, it's a ghost. It was somebody broke in the house. Like I almost called 911. To this day, Johnny lives next door in Mary Peckham's old home. And although there's never been a scary murder occurring in that building, it is not without its history. So when I moved here and took the job, the house next door came open. First night I stayed here, I'm like, man, that's a pretty good lightning storm outside. As people taking photographs, as flashes from their camera. And I thought, oh no, what did I do moving next to this place? So right off the bat, my uh, daughter started talking about Hattie, Hattie this, Hattie that, Hattie watches her sleep. I'm like, she's probably four years old. No, who's Hattie? Because that's the woman who lives upstairs. Years go by, I have a son and I'm giving him a bath. He's about two or three. And he goes, bye dad, bye Grace. And he looks up at the ceiling. He goes, bye Hattie. I go, what? He goes, bye Hattie. You're two years old. You don't know this story. I had a lady come take a day to her. She goes, I used to live at the house next door in the eighties. The I was like, really? I go, that's where I live. She showed me pictures. She's from Texas. Showed me pictures of her as a baby in my kitchen. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And she's quiet. She goes, weird things happened over there. I'm like, oh yeah. I goes, yeah, I had a name for the ghost from as a little kid. I want to say it started with an H. And then I didn't say anything in my head. At the time, everyone in Johnny's family had experienced Hattie, but it was actually Johnny's then wife who bore the brunt of Hattie's activity. Bad things, scary things happened to Johnny's wife. It was clear that Hattie was singling her out. Things happened. We divorced. Everything stopped. And my house is calm, you name it. So my friends talked me into going on a blind date. I'm like, yeah, brother, I'm sure I was wowing this girl with hours of axe murder stories and go boosts and this and that. She's like, yeah, whatever. So we I go, let's go walk in there. Walk in, the light in my living room turns on, got so bright. I thought the bulb was going to explode as like an energy surge. Shuts off, back on. She ran off. I've never seen her again. The ex calls. She's like, we need to talk about our daughter's grades. Like, we'll come over. We can. We're adults. We can co-parent. She gets on the porch, runs off. And I'm like, what is going on? She goes, she got on the porch and felt like somebody took her shirt and pulled her like, out. So me being me, I'm like, that's Hattie. She hates you. <laughs> so come to find out, Mary Peckham died six months after the murders from a nervous breakdown. And I'm looking at the deed. House goes to adult daughter, Hattie Peckham. Johnny was stunned. He instantly put on his historian hat and began to research Hattie Peckham. Soon he realized the connection. Hattie had quite an affection for the Moore children. The Moore children used to play over here because Mary was like a grandma to them. So much that they had a fence in between the houses. They tore the fence down so that kids could freely go back and forth. So Hattie knew what happened. And if she's watching my daughter sleep, Right, just protecting my daughter, making sure this never happens again. Hattie is right to protect Johnny's kids because at the Velisca house next door, the activity is deeply disturbing. One of the most gruesome events happened when a team of investigators came for an overnight investigation at the Axe house. There's a second overnight. We get a lot of returning people. Like, oh, hey, we chit-chatted for a while and I come home, go to bed, and I wake up and I'm tagged in a million things on social media. Man stabs himself at Axe Murder House. I'm like, man, it sucks to be Lizzie Borden's place right now. You know? And I read it and it's Velisca. I'm like, what? So I walk over there. The house is locked up. I call up the owner, Martha. I was like, can I go in? Is this a crime scene? I'm like, what are you talking about? She calls them. They said, yeah, it happened. He was life flighted to Creighton in Omaha. That he's going to be fine. They're saying nothing. They want it all to go away. 
For years, Johnny never knew what happened to this man. Why did he stab himself? Was he okay? However, a few years later, Kindred Spirits, a paranormal show on the Discovery Channel, came to the house to film an episode. Johnny was on the property making sure filming was going smoothly, and he stepped into the barn. He was absolutely shocked to see that sitting in the middle of the barn was the man who had impaled himself inside the Velisca Axe House. I talked to him forever. He had a big knife strapped to his side, like a big Rambo knife. And I go, why'd you bring a knife? He said, oh, being in a weird town in an axe murder house, you don't know the locals. He wanted some kind of protection. I'm like, I get that, I suppose. I don't Said he was provoking, saw a light in the closet, woke up in the emergency room. And he took that knife, which was about a foot long knife, shoved it into his chest. And this guy, very late fifties, sobbing to me out in the barn. And I'm like, you got to go back in the house. Like you have to confront this. You know, you can't let this ruin your life. And he said, he never said a word to anyone because he didn't want people thinking he was crazy or doing it for money or to be on TV or anything. Um, the reason he's coming back is he wanted to tell his side of the story. Because he gets on the internet and he sees all this lies and stuff. So I brought him into the house and walked in with him. And the first thing he did was apologize to the house. And we were all hit with this static wave of, I don't, I can't even describe it. I mean, it's like a hitting a brick wall of static electricity and all of our hair, all of our arm hair, everything. And we all looked at each other at the same time, like, what is happening? At that point, I'm like, I need to become an accountant. Or something that's getting weird. <laughs> I believe the house, if you have any mental, not mentally stable completely, or relying on whatever faith you believe in for protection, will exploit that 100%. The house definitely has an ability to play with your psyche, and Johnny has experienced that firsthand. The EVP I'm going to play for you now was collected by Johnny while the house was empty, the street was quiet, and no one was in or outside the home making any noise. Yeah, there's a one that's really disturbing, and it's about 30 seconds, and it sounds like the residual of the axe murder is happening. Whack, whack, ah, whack, please God, no whack, screaming. Little kids screaming, the sounds of the axe, terrifying. And I was there when it was caught, so I know it's legit. Nobody was even in the house. The problem with this EVP is that's not how the crime would have been committed. They weren't up running around screaming their heads off. They're all asleep in bed. Nobody was awake. Whatever did that is mimicking that noise just to instill sadness, fear, whatever, into people that listen to it. On a never-ending quest for answers, Johnny is always searching for new clues that may lead him to who the murderer is. One time, however, he really pushed the limits of the house. And the house pushed back. So one day we decided to recreate what happened. Um, and I, I went in and I, okay, so I don't think the family's there. You know, I'm going to make a lot of axe house haunted purists mad. I don't think the family's ever been there haunting the house. I think there's something else. But I went in. And I'm like, kids, family, if you guys are really here, this is what we're doing tonight. Please don't be scared. And this is why we're doing it. I wanted to like push it to the limit to get some sort of big name of 
who did it. You know, I just wanted to really push the house to its breaking point. The scene was set. Johnny and some fellow historians and paranormal investigators all assumed their roles as the Moors, the Stillinger girls, and the axe murderer himself. They laid in the beds and prepared for the recreation. We had eight people. For some reason, I was the axe guy. So I go up in the attic with the axe and I'm hearing pot like whispering and I blocking it out. It's like, I'm not hearing this. I'm not listening to this. I'm not even, nope, <laughs> not happening. So eight people randomly come in, they go to bed. And I also wanted to see how can, how can this be done? The guy was hiding in the attic. Can I sneak out without them knowing? Go to the parents' room and it's two friends of mine. And it's just like super awkward. Like, no, <laughs> no. I just kind of hit the floor with the axe. They start screaming. And I'm like, ah, that, okay, that was a bit much, guys. I go to the kids' room, whole vibe changes instantly. And it's just like, ah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing this. Just that bad feeling. Like, we'll just do it. It'll never happen again. You know, I put out the disclaimer. And I don't think they're even here anyway. So I hit the floors up there. They do the scream thing. Meanwhile, I have the two people down in Lena's room. One's a friend of mine. I've been scary places with him all over. He's, he doesn't even believe in ghosts. He thinks I'm killing them up there. He starts crying. He runs out of the house. His friend gets up and like, what's going on? He runs out after him. As I'm walking from the kid's room to the staircase, I start feeling like I'm like half drunk or something. Like I'm just out of it. I snap out of it and I'm standing downstairs. And right in front of Ina and Lena's room. And the reason I stepped out of it was I thought I heard a voice. I'm just like, I'm done, guys. I, this is stupid. Should have never done it. Never going to do it again. I'm calling it. I'm just done with this. Well, we watched the video. Shows me walk downstairs, standing in the parlor room for X amount of times, just standing there. I look up at one of the night vision cameras and I squint. Humans don't see infrared. What am I squinting at? Then you see me kind of rub my face, like shake it off, you know, and I, I walk over to the room where I thought I heard the voice. We caught the voice that goes, do it. Like to actually do it. And that was some Amityville stuff I want nothing to do with. If it wasn't for this video, Johnny would not remember the full events of this experiment. He seemed to have blurred out, be in a trance-like state, which is interesting because that is exactly what Reverend Kelly said happened to him. What do you want the takeaway to be from the Velisca Axe House? For a long time, I wrestled with, I'm a lover of history. I've never been anywhere in the United States at any historic location where they go, this is where happy things happened. Gettysburg, Salem, Trail of Tears, Plantation, like it's all horrible, you know, but we got to remember it so we don't repeat it. Uh, but I was still wrestling with this, like, I don't know, man. I think their story's important, like I'm in love with those, the family, you know, I feel like big brother to them, as weird as that sounds, but is this exploitive? Is it this? Is it that? You know, and the neighbor across the street goes, nah, man. He goes, it's not even what that place is. He goes, I see that place as family spending time together. I go, what? He goes, every day you got grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, kids all doing something together. And the kids don't have their faces in their phones. They go, it's weird, but they're creating memories. It is weird, but it's also true. And it resonates with me because I like to visit haunted places with my family. Some of my favorite memories are from London ghost walks with my mom, haunted hotel visits with my husband, family road trips to ghost towns in the Wild West. As grim as it may be, the Moors and the Stillingers were a family. That home was so much more than just a crime scene, but a place of birthdays, Christmases, playtimes, timeouts, arguments, wholesome meals, and lots of love and memories. And still today, it is a family home, 
Unorthodox, yes. Dark tourism, maybe. But it does bring people together. It brought us together. Johnny sitting in Mary Peckin's home in Iowa and me in the cottage in England. It brought you here, wherever you may be in the world. As strange and as horrible as an axe murder from 1912 is, it has a way of connecting people. And if there is any light in this tragic tale, it is that the Moors and the Stillingers have a legacy that lives on and has evolved into something that transcends the terrible deeds that were committed against them. Thank you so much for joining us for our 50th episode. From all of us here at the West London Witch, thank you for your love and support over these past 50 spooky tales. Cheers to 50 more to come. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.